Oh, they are, we are this morning looking at the sixth or the ninth commandment. Uh, it's again, we, you know, we know many of the nine, or the ten commandments. This one, you know, Exodus chapter uh, chapter twenty. It's very very direct. It's simply, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And uh, we're going to dive into that. We're going to see there's a lot there to, to understand and to apply. But let me open with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the privilege that we have to come together this morning, Father, to be able to dive into your word. Thank you for the truth that is here. Father, truth that you want us to understand. Father, I pray that you would bless our time now. Thank you for what you continue to teach me. And Father, I pray that your spirit would speak through me and in spite of me, Father, to be able to communicate your truth. Father, help each one of us to hear what you would have for us to hear this morning. Father, to understand and not only what it means, but how to apply it to our own life and our own circumstances. I pray your blessing. I pray for your spirit to speak, that, that our hearts would be open. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we, we're in our study of the Ten Commandments, and again, we've come to the ninth. It seems to be very direct and straightforward. We read a moment ago, simply, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's often understood as the command that's really against lying. And we all agree about the importance of this commandment. We, we all want to think of ourselves as honest people. We want other people to see us as honest people. We want people to tell us the truth, and we're, we're bothered by anyone who would lie to us. So telling the truth is important, right? We, we know that. Even when we think about relationships, any real relationship that has any depth to it it's at all is built upon a foundation of trust. And that trust is built upon telling the truth. And so what you see is that oftentimes you could have a relationship and as soon as somebody starts to introduce a lie, there's dishonesty, suddenly that whole foundation of trust starts to crumble. And by a simple few lies, a whole relationship can start to fall apart. It's important. But is it always important? Do we always tell lies? Are there ever any exceptions? What about when your wife comes to you and asks, okay, do these pants make me look fat? Uh, what if you're thinking, well, the honest answer is yes, they do. They actually show off the 15 pounds that you gained over the last couple of months. Now, if that's the honest answer, should you say it? No, that's the answer. It's not a good thing to say. And, and not that either of us are sharing that by personal example. You know, we've never had... You know, I mean, just to be safe, I want to make sure that my wife has never worn anything that makes her look fat. You know, she's just beautiful. Wife. Wait a second, this is a sermon on lying. Uh, I, might, I might be getting myself into trouble here, so this was a bad, bad, bad idea to use this whole illustration. The whole question gets you in trouble, so let's just change the subject. Oh, okay. So how do we understand this whole thing? See, when we think of the Ten Commandments, there is a sense they're foundational moral laws that God gives us to build our lives upon in a culture. But as we've looked at the Ten Commandments, we've seen that they are always more than that. They're also teaching a principle. We're going to look at the principle more next week of truth and, and, and how that's so vital to relationships and to culture. But they also are going deeper than the moral law, and God is trying to deal with not just what we do, who we are. He's trying to deal with a heart issue. He's trying to, you know, to really go and, um, and expose something about who we are. You see, the thing is, is that if I just focus on the rules, the law, then it's all about what I do. 
And God's not only concerned with what I do, he's concerned about who I am. Because if it changes who I am, then what I do will change naturally. Now, while it's a moral law, again, it's more than that. But we struggle to even understand the moral law. Why? Because we, while we agree that lying is wrong, do we even agree with what lying is? How do we define a lie? You know, somebody will say, well, what about a little white lie? Is that really a lie? What about someone, you know, if you technically tell the truth, but, you know, it's done in such a way that's meant to deceive? You know, I think about even with the big news that was made over this past couple of weeks. You had, uh, whether, however you feel about the whole issue, uh, you know, pack, uh, uh, the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers was asked about, you know, he had been vaccinated, and he says, well, yes, I've been inoculated, and, and he goes on, and it created this controversy because it came out that he had not been vaccinated. Well, technically, he told the truth. He had been inoculated, but he told it in such a way to clearly mislead, and so people are, are beating him up on that. Well, is that, was it truthful? Is it deceptive? What is a lie? You know, it's a good question, and it's one that we struggle with. Because the fact is, is that pretty much everyone lies. In fact, there was a study that was done on this, and it found that in a survey, 91% of the people in America admitted that they lie on a regular basis. There's another study that was done by a guy named uh, Michael Lewis of the Robert Wood Medical uh, School, and he concluded that in a single day, most people lie a minimum of 25 times. And so we lie a lot. And, uh, but the problem is that even when you ask, do you lie, if you don't even agree with what a lie is, how do you know? And how do you know that you can trust somebody when saying how much they lie? And you know what's interesting is that surveys done at the same time showed that the vast majority of Americans still consider themselves to be extremely honest. So here's this contradiction. 91% of the people admit that they lie on a regular basis. At the same time, the very same people say that they consider themselves to be extremely honest. I think we have some serious confusion on this issue, even to the point that it's creating a crisis within our culture. See, while we say that lying is wrong, most Americans would argue that it's not always wrong. And there are exceptions to that. In fact, there are some people that not only would argue that from, from a personal standpoint, they argue it from a theoretical perspective. Let me give you an example. There was an article put out by the American Association for the Advancement of Science talking about how lying is actually a sign of evolutionary progress. Look what it says. Proficiency at lying may be the best measure of advancement with primates much more adept at it than other mammals, and human beings being the most masterful deceivers on the planet. Now, here's what the argument is basically saying. From an evolutionary perspective, what the Bible regards as sin, science regards as a virtue. What the Bible says is a result of the fall and of our brokenness, modern science presents as an evidence of our advancement and evolution. Now, you look at this and you say, okay, clearly, if, if people are arguing it's a good thing, we've got confusion, we've got a problem. And it's not just something that's in the, you know, the journals of academics that are arguing this. In reality, we all struggle with it because, again, while we say that lying is wrong, we, we often at the same time say, if it's a small thing, you know, if it's, it's a survey after survey says, it's not really a lie if it's a small thing doesn't hurt anybody. In fact, again, it's often seen as a virtue. Let me read another quote that illustrates this. This was from a um, magazine, Time magazine, an article they did on the subject back several years back. And look at what they said. 
The injunction against bearing false witness, branded in stone and brought down by Moses from the mountaintop, has always provoked an ambivalent, conflicting emotions. On the one hand, nearly everyone condemns lying. On the other hand, nearly everyone does it every day. How many of the Ten Commandments can be broken so easily and with so little risk of detection over the telephone? Hence, the never-ending paradox. Some bedrock of honesty is fundamental to society. People cannot live together if no one is able to believe what anyone else is saying. But there also seems to be an honesty threshold, a point beyond which virtue turns mean and nasty. Consistently hearing the truth, the cold, hard, and brutal, unsparing truth from spouses and relatives and friends and colleagues is not a pleasant prospect. As T.S. Eliot wrote, humankind cannot bear much, very much reality. Truth-telling makes it possible for people to coexist. A little lying makes such co much a society more tolerable. And so here you have this whole teaching of saying, again, we, the world depends on truth-telling. Relationships depend on it. But at the same time, some lying is necessary. It's even a good thing, as long as they're little white lies. But there's some problems with that. First of all, who defines what's a big lie and what's a little lie? Not only that, but if you think about it, generally the definition of the liar is very different than the one who's being lied to. So I may feel like something's a little white lie, the person that I'm telling the lie to almost certainly is going to think it a much bigger deal. The fact is, you know, I, I might not think of voicing a lie, but when you've lied to on a little thing, it's bothered you, hasn't it? Because it, it's, it does break trust. Now, the problem is when we think of this and understanding it from a biblical perspective is that if we, as we said in the beginning, the Ten Commandments are moral laws, but if we think of them as just that, there's a limitation to it. They're going to break down because when we think about laws, it's defining the rules, and we're always going to try to redefine the rules. We're going to find the loopholes in the rules. And so let me give you three different examples of this, three, in a sense, strategies that we will use for somehow justifying lying and saying that we're still keeping the rules. Now, the first one I'm going to call moralism. And we talk about moralism. Moralism is basically defining the, redefining the rules for lying. And uh, so what we do is we try to redefine it, in a sense saying instead of the command rising us up to a higher level of telling the truth, we redefine it so that we dumb it down. And it stresses the letter of the law while at the same time rejecting the spirit of the law. So the moralists will stress the importance of not lying technically. As long as you technically told the truth, the fact is, is that you could still be very deceptive in what you say. Let me give you an example. I remember a number of years ago, I had a friend of mine who we were talking about honesty, and she started talking about how her mom was such a great example of honesty. Her mom was so committed to telling the truth. And so she started to tell me about that just her mom's example. She said, well, when I was a girl, when I'd be at home, if somebody would call on the phone and uh, ask for my mom, it would be wrong to say that she wasn't home if my mom was home. So my mom would teach me to ask who it was. And so they'd say, well, they said, oh, so hello, Mr. Smith. And if it wasn't somebody that my mom wanted to talk to, she'd hold up a finger and she'd run outside and she'd stand in the garage. And then I could say, oh, my mom isn't home right now. <laughs> now she's telling me this as an example of how her mom was totally committed to truthfulness. And what you see, it was this moralism, defining the rules for lying. Technically, I'm telling the truth. But as long as I'm technically telling the truth, I can be really, really deceptive. 
See now, when you look at the technical letter of the law, you can, you're destroying the spirit. And it misses that. Because God, God wants to deal not only with, are we keeping the rules? He wants to deal with our heart. Are we becoming truthful? Another way we do it is, is, is uh, relativism. And see, these see the rules as flexible. And, uh, you know, so the lie, lie against moral, against lying isn't this more absolute. It's not that it's always wrong, but it depends on the circumstances. It depends there are some true lies and there are some white lies. It's even to use a picture, if I had like a board up here, you know, you look at it and say, if you have a board and, you know, you say, well, here is a, here's a strict line, can't be crossed. On this side, it's truth, and this side, it's a lie. Well, the relativists would see it not as a board, they would see it as kind of a rope. And so you have a rope, and the fact is, with a rope, you can scoot it over one way or another. Well, technically, this really isn't a lie. Well, technically, well, here it is. And, and generally, again, my feeling about the relative morality is that I have a lot more freedom to tell a lie than you have the freedom to lie to me. But it's defined you know, by, by my sense of conviction. And here's the problem, is that the Bible is designed, it says in James, that it's a mirror that's supposed to reflect back to us God's truth in a way that reveals something that is broken within us. But instead of letting the Bible be a mirror that shows where we're dishonest, now through relativism, we look at it and we said, well, okay, well, let me take what the Bible says and I can redefine it to fit my convictions, my feelings. And so the Bible isn't convicting me, I'm actually over the Bible changing the Bible's meaning to make it fit so that it doesn't convict me. That's this relativism that allows this kind of strange paradox where 91% of Americans say, I lie regularly, and at the same time, the very same people say, but I'm completely, I'm totally honest. Because you're redefining what the rules mean. They're flexible. We justify our dishonesty. The third view is, or third way we do this is what I'll call legalism. And legalism stresses different levels of truth. And so there are certain times you've got to be really strict and there are certain times that you don't. In fact, Jesus addressed this one directly in, uh, in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. And so he was talking about this whole issue and to a culture where they were doing this very, very, you know, ex to an extreme. Look what he says, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 33. Again, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is a footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Um, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And basically, here's what was going on. In Jesus' day, people knew that it was important to not make an oath against God. If you swore in God's name, you had to keep it. And so that was clearly understood. But they wanted to be, be able to make promises that sounded convincing, but yet weren't binding. Basically, they wanted to be able to figure out a way to lie convincingly. So they developed this system, and the whole idea was that swearing by God is totally binding. So the closer your vow was to God, the more binding it was. So, so for example, if you swore by earth, well, earth is a long way for God, so that isn't that binding. But if you swore by Jerusalem, well, that's God's city. That's a little more binding. Well, if you swear by heaven or by God's throne, that's really close to God. So that's really binding. So you would have this whole system. Now, you know, we do the same thing. How often, you know, if you heard people say, well, I'll do that. Well, we didn't do it. Well, I didn't promise. 
It's kind of like, well, it didn't count unless I promised. And, and then if we're really serious, well, well I promised. Well, are you sure? Well, I, I, I promised God. I promised on a stack of Bibles. I promise, you know. And so we suddenly add things. And because we add these different things, suddenly, well, this, if I just said it, it isn't worth that much. If I promise, what's worth more? If I promise on top of something, it's worth more. And then, you know, if I promise with my fingers crossed, well, that kind of, this kind of a get out of jail free card type of thing. And what we need to realize is that we're doing the same thing. We're focusing on the external behavior. We're looking at this and saying, how do I tweak the rules? How do I manipulate them through moralism, through legalism, through you know, relativism? And, and the Bible's saying, okay, all, the problem is it's all focusing on rules. And if you focus on the rules, you'll always find a way to somehow cheat. But like all the commandments, God's teaching on this issue is that he's not just concerned with the rules. The moral rule introduces us to the greater truth. But God is concerned not just with the rules, he's concerned with our heart. He's not just concerned with what we do, he's concerned with who we are. He doesn't want to just change our behavior, he wants to change our character. And so when we look at this, and what is the character? What is God developing? He doesn't want us just to not only be people of, that don't lie, he wants us to develop a character of truthfulness. Now, you might be thinking, well, how is that different than not lying? Well, there's a huge difference. You see, if the command focuses on rules, again, as we've seen, we can reinterpret them, we can redefine them, we can manipulate them. If God is calling us to a character of honesty, if you are an honest person, you won't be lying. You won't be changing the rules. Telling the truth is a step that is way above avoiding the lies. See, what it's doing is it's calling us not only to focus on not lying, in a sense, against deceptive speech or, or, or false speech, but it's also commanding us against even deceptive speech. Because a lot of times, again, when I focus on, on the rule, well, technically I didn't lie. But we still know that we're deceptive. In fact, let's go back to the passage. If you go to Exodus chapter 20, verse uh, 16, the commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The word there, false witness, false, it's a very broad word that doesn't just mean lying, it doesn't just mean untrue, it also means decept, deceitful. It, it's, it's the word that was used to describe the false prophets. So when the word that's, going, that's here is not just false speech, but it's any speech that's deceitful. It might be technically true, but even if it's technically true, but we intend to deceive, the fact is, is it's still a lie according to the commandment. See, I think of the, uh, this, one a great example of this narrow legalistic definition and where it made national news. Some of you, you know, younger may not remember this, you may have heard about it. Back in the 1990s, uh, you had President Bill Clinton that was put on a grand jury testimony for his, his relationship with, with a woman named Monica Lewinsky. And in the testimony, he was asked if he had had improper sexual relationships with her, and he responded in his testimony that there is no improper relationship between me and Monica Lewinsky. Well, later it came out that there was plenty of evidence that there had been an affair. And so he was challenged on this and saying, well, you lied. And he said, no, I didn't lie. So why is it you didn't lie? And here's his response. It depends, and when they, again, the question was, is there an improper relationship? And now his response is, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. If is means, that there uh, is, and there never has been, and is not, well, that's one thing. Basically, if is is saying that there has never been, well, then, you know, but that's not what I said. If is means that there is none, meaning currently, then it was a completely true statement. 
So now the thing is, is that clearly he lied. His intention was to deceive, but he's arguing, but I told the truth. Technically, I told the truth. But you've got to realize that the ninth commandment isn't just about not speaking falsely, it's about not speaking deceptively. In fact, God wanted to make this so clear that when he, in, in Deuteronomy, they're given in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments are repeated in Deuteronomy 5. And when they're given in Deuteronomy 5, almost all the wording is the same. Yet on this commandment, God changed the wording. It's the same, the same in English. But in the Hebrew, when it says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, the word false there is actually a broader word. It has the meaning of, of emptiness, worthy, uh, worthlessness, va- vanity, something that's vain. And I believe that God wants to make sure we get this point. He's making clear. It's not just if you say something that is false. It's if you say something deceptive. If you say something that is worthless. If you give an answer that is kind of an avoidance of the question and a way to deceive. You know, I might say, well, I've just redirected. I just, if they, I just said this. If they come to the wrong conclusion, well, that's their fault. And that's exactly what God is speaking here. What we need to realize is that he's talking about any time that we lie with words, even if our words are not dishonest, but they're meaningless or they're, they're empty. Why? Because they're still harmful. There may be times that we technically tell the truth, but the fact is, is that our words are just as, not only false, but just as harmful and as destructive if we came out and told a blatant lie. In fact, they may be more so because of the deception. And so God is really clear here. Now, even as we try to get this then, okay, well then what is he calling us to? What is the heart? And one of the things we've seen throughout the commandments is that there are, most of them are put into negative terms. You shall not commit this sin. But what we've seen is that God is always concerned about not only the evil that we don't do, the righteousness that we do. He wants us to develop a character trait that does the right thing. So what are we looking at here? It's not just a commandment against speaking falsehood. It's also a commandment about speaking truth. And there's a big difference. You know, I've even heard messages on the ninth commandment where people have, the preachers have preached that it's, well, here's a definition of the lie and you gotta do this. Inviting this kind of um, moralism and legalism that we talked about before where technically you're telling the truth and which makes you wonder about the honesty of the guy presenting the passage. That's not what the Bible teaches. And the Bible in various places are very clear, not only in the commandment itself, but let me give you another example. In in Ephesians chapter four, you have a clear commentary on what the commandment teaches. Look at what we're called called to, Ephesians four, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor that we are members of one another. So put all falsehood. Stop speaking not only things that are lying, that are deceptive. It's not even that, but there's a standard that goes beyond not being deceptive. God wants us to be truthful. He wants us to be defined by our commitment to speaking the truth. In fact, this is the same idea that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 5. We looked at it a few moments ago when he was talking about the legalism. And he was confronting people. And look at what he said. And he said, you know, don't take uh, Matthew 5... uh, um, Verse 36, do not take an oath by your head for you cannot make one hair white or black. Uh, Simply let your yes be yes or your no be no. More than that comes from evil. And basically the whole idea is he's saying, I want people to be character of truthfulness. It's not that it's wrong to swear an oath at all. That's not his point. But what he's saying is don't ever use evasive language. He's saying what we need to realize as followers of Christ 
It should be my simple yes should be the same thing as I sign a stack of contracts, if I swear on a stack of Bibles, it should be the same, that we should have a character of truthfulness that our yes is yes, our no is no. See, God wants us to develop that. He wants us to be people of truth. But are there limits to that? Do you know anybody that is, says they're, they're totally committed to truth, but they do it in a way that is harsh, that is offensive? that just steps over people. They'll say something that is just offensive to other people and well, I'm just telling the truth. I'm just being honest here. Do you know anybody? Yeah, we all know people like that. Okay, well, God's called us to be people of truth and, but on the other hand, that's clearly not the spirit of Jesus. Well, here's what you've got to see. Okay, there's two ideas here that God's developing in our heart. One is that we're people of truth. Second of all, that when we understand truth, it's truth that is always balanced with grace that God calls us to be people of gracious, gracious truth. See, when, I, when we study this, people often come back and they'll say, are there any exceptions? Are there any times that when you come and you say, you shouldn't say what you're thinking, you shouldn't tell the truth? And, and what happens when your wife asks, does this make me look fat? And are there any limits to our truth telling? Well, that's a hard question. You know, is there so much, such thing as too much honesty? I, I, I ran across a story some time ago that I love that I think illustrates it so well. It's a young boy that learned to struggle with this question. Let me go ahead and read his words. It says, our teacher asked us what our favorite animal was, and I said, fried chicken. She said I wasn't funny, but she couldn't have been right because everyone else in the class laughed. My parents told me to always be truthful and honest, and I, I try to be. Fried chicken is my favorite animal. I told my dad what happened, and he said my teacher was probably a member of PETA, and he said they love animals very much. I do too, especially chicken and pork and beef. Um, anyway, my teacher sent me to the principal's office, and I told him what happened, and he laughed too, and then he told me not to do it again. The next day in class, my teacher asked me what my favorite live animal was. I told her it was chicken. And she asked me why, like she'd asked the other children, and I told her it was because you could make them into fried chicken. She sent me back to the principal's office again. He laughed and he told me not to do it again. But I don't understand. My parents taught me to be honest, but my teacher doesn't like it when I am. Well, today, my teacher asked us to tell us what our uh, famous person we admire the most. I told her, Colonel Sanders. <laughs> Guess where I am now. Yeah. <laughs> okay, should there be limits to our truth telling? Should there be? Let's go back to the ninth commandment. There's actually two parts of the ninth commandment. We focus on one, we miss the other. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The one that we focus on is don't bear false witness. The part that we sometimes miss is the focus of that against your neighbor. The focus of the command is lies against our neighbor. And so the most blatant violation is when we lie in such a way that harms someone else. But there are two things that are condemned here. First of all, speaking falsely, and second of all, speaking against our neighbor in a way that's hurtful. See, God has called us to use our words in a way that blesses God, that honors God, that praises him, and that blesses other people. And so that when you look throughout the Bible, there's all kinds of teaching about how the, the way that we use our speech. Things about quarreling and slandering and gossip and Corinthians and Ephesians. He calls us to put aside all slander and malice. These are sins of the speech that violate the ninth commandment. Now you look at it and you say, well, what about gossip? How is that? Well, it's true. Well, is it? Well, first of all, it might be your, your opinion, but, but is it, it, it's not even a question of it's true if it's harmful. 
I like someone's definition of a gossip. A gossip is someone who will never tell a lie when the truth can do more damage. That hurts. I mean, it's, it's convicting, but that's, there's a reality to this. See, what we need to realize is that God's not just confronting deceptive speech. He's confronting destructive speech. And what is God's desire for our speech? God's desire is that we use speech in such a way that's truthful, that also builds others up. A few moments ago, we looked at Ephesians 4.25, what talked about is put put aside falsehood, speak truthfully. But look what it says a few verses later about this whole building others up. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Anything that is corrupting, anything that tears down, anything that, that, that hurts, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. That means that we shouldn't lie But at the same point, we use our truth in such a way that we don't want to share things that hurt, that tear down, but we want to give grace. We want to build up. You know, Christ-like speech is it's something that's truth combined and defined by love. But some people say, okay, but it's true. You know, I said this and it's true. I'm just speaking the truth. Okay, here's some hard questions we have to ask. Is, okay, when I say something, is what I'm going to say, is it true? Do I know it's true? Is it the whole truth or is it only a part of the truth to make my point? Is what I said known to be true or is it just my opinion? Or is it my interpretation of the truth so that it's really more my opinion than what's, what is really true? And even if it is true, does it really need to be said to the other person in conversation? And, and, and it's one thing even if I'm speaking to the other person, what if I'm speaking about the other person? Well, here's a really tough question. If the other person was here, would you say the same thing in the same way? And if you wouldn't say the same thing in the same way, then you shouldn't say it when the other person isn't there. Because clearly it's not building them up. It's not giving grace to those who hear. See, what we need to realize is it's calling us to balance two aspects of God's character. God is grace and God is love. And so when we're called to do this, we're called to speak truth, but always truth in love. Again, a few moments ago, we talked about Ephesians 4.25, having put away falsehood, let us speak truth to his neighbor. For uh, um, Each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. So we're called to do that. But let me go back a few verses before that. Verses that set the context of what it means to speak truth. Look at verse 15, Ephesians 4. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up uh, in every way into him who is the head into Christ. We are to speak the truth in love. We're to speak the truth if you go to verse 29 in a way that gives grace to those who hear. We're called to be, Colossians 4, let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt that you may know how to answer everyone. Salt doesn't cause decay, it preserves. Proverbs 20, uh, 12, 18, reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. God wants us to be people who speak grace words. And that's, these are little things. So even when we think about just the way that we relate to family, the way that we not only talk with our spouse, but the way that we talk about marriage. If I'm talking about marriage in a negative way and talking about it being a ball on chain or something like that, that's not grace words. That's not right. That's wrong. Well, it's just, I'm just joking. How often is it just even sarcasm and jokes? That our sarcasm, if it's biting, if it's hurting, that's not grace words. And that's not building words. That's corrupting speech. And when we look at that, that's what God is dealing with. He's dealing both with people that are truthful, but a truth that is defined by grace. And if you want to know what it looks like, the perfect picture is Jesus. 
passage that we all know this time of year, we quote it, Matthew, or John chapter 1, verse 14, talking about the coming of Jesus. Look what it says. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came, he became flesh so that we see what, something of God's character in a way we couldn't otherwise. And what is it? We've seen his glory, glory as from the only uh, son from the father, full of grace and truth. He was full of grace, full of truth. He had truth that was uncompromised and a grace that was radical. And so you see this in Jesus. He never soft-pedaled the truth, but yet he always did it in a way that was gracious. And we see it not only in Jesus, but we see it literally in everything Jesus stood for. That's the gospel message. If you want to understand the gospel, the whole gospel message is one of uncompromised truth defined by radical grace. Because what is the gospel? The gospel is total truth. It tells the truth about us. Even the parts that we don't want to know. Even the parts that we want to avoid. The Bible talks in Romans chapter, in John chapter 3 that, that Jesus is like a light that exposes the dark parts of our heart, that exposes sin that we want to hide. See, contrary to the arguments of some people, it's clear that in the Bible that God doesn't approve all our moral choices and all our moral decisions and not all moral behaviors aren't good, that God affirms. You know, the truth of the Bible is clear, that we are all sinners who fall fallen short of the glory of God that we have a sin nature and that we're drawn to do things that are wrong. Every one of us talks about Romans chapter six, that not only we're all sinners, but therefore because of our sin, we justly deserve God's wrath. The wages of sin, our just desert is God's wrath, is death. That's the truth. But as God presents that truth, it's truth defined by radical grace. Because while the Bible says, okay, it exposes our sin, it's not exposing our sin to announce condemnation and that God hates us. It exposes our sin to announce that God loves us and that God is showing us our need to show us that he's also provided the answer to that need. It shows us that we are sinners that deserve God's wrath, but it also points us towards Jesus who came and lived the perfect life and who died to death on a cross, took our sins upon himself, took God's punishment upon that sins so that it's proclaiming truth but in a way that drives us to know God's grace. It's proclaiming truth to grace. And my friends, I wanna first off say, if you're here today and you don't have that relationship with Jesus, even when we talk about truthfulness and all of us are looking at that and say, man, we fall short, man, I've messed up here. And it, the message of the gospel is not try harder and try to be good and somehow earn God's favor. And God, if you make God happy enough, maybe he'll let you in. That's not the message of the gospel. It's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that God exposes this and we all fall short. And there's nothing we can do to fix it. There's nothing we can do to be good enough to earn God's favor. But the message of the Bible is God exposes that not to condemn us, but to point us towards grace. To the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And if you're here today and you say, boy, God, I realize that I've sinned, I've fallen short. And it's not, okay, try harder, be good. It's will you admit to God, God, I need you. I'm a sinner, I, I need you to forgive me. See, coming to God is, is coming and saying, bringing our need, admitting to him, confessing with him our sin and our need, and saying, God, I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to forgive me through what Jesus did on the cross and to give me righteousness I don't have of myself. It's uncompromising truth. The reality is the gospel tells us that we are a whole lot more sinful, a whole lot more broken, a whole lot more... Um, in a sense, evil in the depth of our heart than we would ever dream to admit. But at the same time, 
that we are far more loved and accepted by God's grace than you ever dreamed hope. It exposes us, not to condemn us, but to invite us to grace. If you've never trusted in Christ, if you've never asked him to forgive us, since I invite you to do so today. And for those of us who have, then we realize, okay, then how do I grow? Well, the reality is that even as a follower of Christ, we all fall short of this. There isn't any of us that I think could say, oh, yeah, it didn't, didn't speak to me at all. No, the only question is, how much am I trying to redefine these rules and, and justifying compromises? See, we're not here to try to say, okay, let's look at the rules and, and you know, keep the rule, do better. See, God doesn't want us to focus on the rules. He doesn't want us to focus just on what we do. He wants us to focus on who we are. Now, the thing is that if I focus on the rule, I can try harder to keep the rule. I can try harder to do. How do I try harder to change who I am, to be? I can't. I can't change who I am. All I can do is that I can come and say, God, I agree with you. There's something broken. I ask you to change me. The, the, you know, God's law exposes, why? Because he wants me to surrender. He wants me to admit it before God, surrender and ask him to change me from the inside out. And only he can, he can do that. God, I need you to make me an honest person beyond who I am. Father, that I'm a person that not only avoids telling lies, but that I'm a person of the truth and that I tell the truth in a way that's defined by love. My friends, I hope and pray that in a culture that is so confused about this issue, where people are lying all the time and not bothered by it, that we learn to be people of truth that are radically different, not because we're rule keepers, but because we get to know God, we get to know his character, and we let his character seep into us and change us from the inside out so that we become more like him. People that aren't focused on, well, is that a lie or not? But that we are people of the truth that we speak not only the truth, but we do so in a way that's defined by grace. That in interaction, we're speaking words that aren't corrupting and paring each other down, but we're learning to speak truth in a way that builds up, that gives grace to each other. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the church increasingly became that kind of place, that kind of safe place, where you know that you can rely on the truth, but not only that, but the truth is, is Christ's true truth, God's truth, and a truth that is that is uncompromising, but is radically defined by radical grace. I hope and pray that we can become that kind of community.